The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., or 12 p.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So I'm in a unique season of fatherhood right now. We have um, two little ones. Rebecca and I have uh, two little ones. We have a one-year-old son and then an almost three-year-old daughter. And right now, our daughter, she's in, she's in this stage where she pretty much thinks that I'm a superhero, um, which is something I'm trying to perpetuate in her mind. And um, the, this kind of happened like this. We were playing in the living room and with just some toys on the floor, and she looked up and she noticed that one of the light bulbs were out, and so um, she, she looks up and she says, that's broken, that's broken, dada, that's broken. I'm saying, okay, yeah, I see, that's broken. I said, I, I can fix it, and so I went and I got a ladder, I set the ladder, and I did an incredible act of engineering. <laughs> I changed the light bulb all by myself, and um, that's not an easy thing. I mean, you have to make sure when you unscrew the bad light bulb that you don't actually screw that one back in. I mean, people get that mixed up all the time. So I successfully changed the light bulb, I put the, the ladder away, and um, the light's on, and Scarlett looks up and she goes, Dada fixed it, Dada fixed it. And something at this point lodged in her brain where she now believes I can fix anything. Which I don't blame her, I mean that was pretty amazing, but she thinks now I can fix anything. So we were at um, a restaurant recently and one of the lights are out, she goes, Dada fix it. I said, okay, I'm probably not going to fix that one. We were, we were at Home Depot. She saw like way up there in the sky, you know, this, this light bulb was out. Dada, fix it. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Global poverty, dada, fix it. You know, in her mind, <laughs> she thinks now I can fix anything, okay? And I'm holding on to that um, as long as I can because she right now thinks I can do anything and the day is coming where she will believe that I can do nothing. So I'm holding on to this stage as long as possible. So... Um, we're in a series called Road Trip, and one of the, the best parts of a road trip is when you're on this journey, there are all of these unexpected encounters. You know where you're going, but the best parts are usually the adventures along the way. And so through this summer, we're going to be tracking with a couple just average, normal people, but they encounter, in the midst of their daily life, they encounter a guy named Jesus. And even though they're on their journey, going about their business, that encounter changes the course of their life. And the story we're looking at today is the story of a man who's paralyzed and has an incredible, amazing encounter with Jesus. And he realizes, and through the story, we realize the extent to which God, our Father, can reach into our life and fix it. And unlike uh, our earthly relationships like, my daughter will, will realize she overestimates what I can fix. In our relationship with God, we still continually underestimate what he can reach into our life and fix. We're going to look in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can open to Mark chapter 2. It's also going to be up here in the screens. Mark chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. Um, story of Mark is, the story that happens in Mark is basically a biography of Jesus. The first four books in the, what's called the New Testament are all stories about Jesus. They're the biographies 
of Jesus, and it's mainly about his, his ministry, and so we're going to look at that together. You might have your listening guide. Inside the listening guide, we actually have the same passage in Matthew, and we decided it's the same story, but there's some details that Mark draws out, and so we're actually going to look in the book of Mark instead of Matthew this morning, and you're going to see it up here on the screens. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days... It was reported that he was at home. All right, now let's just get the context for where we're at in this city of Capernaum. I want you to notice it says it, it refers to him returning to Capernaum as him returning home. Now there's a couple different towns and cities that we associate with Jesus. Okay, so just a little pop quiz here, okay? One of the first little towns that we associate with Jesus is where he was born. So at Christmas time, you picture Jesus in a manger, in a stable, and we sing this song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. There you go. We associate the town of Bethlehem with Jesus because that's where he was born. But actually, they were really there for only a short time. They were only there because there was a census, and they had to go there. Mary and Joseph, his parents, had to go there by law. So that's where he was born. But that's not where he grew up. He ended up growing up in another town in more northern Israel, a rural town, Um, That's where he's so often, that's associated with Jesus. So often when we talk about Jesus, we say Jesus of Nazareth. And we think of Jesus, we associate him with Bethlehem and Nazareth. But I want you to see what it refers to this town called Capernaum. It says he'd returned home. If you look at the same parallel story in the book of Matthew, it actually says he returned to his city, Capernaum. So here's what's happening with this city. He grew up in, he was born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth, but when he started his ministry, Capernaum became his home base. So much so that if you went to the ruins, the excavations of Capernaum today, you'd walk through the the gates and it says, Capernaum, the town of Jesus. It's known as where his home base was. Specifically, Mark says he returned home. It seems like he's talking about a house and what we can tell from the biblical data, from, histor- from um, historically and archaeologically, there's actually one particular home that he lived in that was his, his home, and it was probably the home of Peter. That's where Peter lived, and it seems like, for best we can tell from all the data, Peter uh, allowed him to live there in his home. Now, you may be saying, okay, Capernaum, I don't recognize that term, but I bet you know of a lot of the people, you've heard of a lot of the people that are from Capernaum. You've heard of this guy, Peter. He's the Peter, Saint Peter, he's sometimes called. Peter and his brother, Andrew, they had a fishing business in Capernaum. You've maybe heard of two other of Jesus' disciples, James and John. They were also fishermen, partners with Peter and Andrew. They are also from Capernaum. You may have heard of a guy named Matthew, wrote one of the books of the Bible. He was a tax collector and became a follower of Christ. He is also from the town of Capernaum. A lot of stories. You may not know much about about the life of Jesus, but I bet some of the stories you have heard take place in this town. That's where Jesus is returning to. He's returning to his home, so it probably means he's in Peter's house. Now, here's what happens. Let's pick it up in verse 2. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. 
And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. All right, picture the scene. They are all just squashed into this house, probably Peter's house, where they knew Jesus would be returning to. They are squashed in this house. Okay, it's so full that it's out the door. People are trying to look over in the door. There's probably people crowded through looking in the windows. Everyone is, it's hot and you know, everyone's pressed against each other. No one else can fit in the house. And Jesus is teaching. And it says, they came. These four guys, they're all holding this bed, this, this mat, or what we would look like a stretcher to us, but they're holding this mat. Each of them have a corner. And they're on this mat is their buddy, their friend. And the man's paralyzed. This man's laying there and they each have a corner. They're carrying this bed and they're trying to get this man to Jesus. Now why? Because Jesus is known to have the ability to heal people. They're trying to get there. They get up to the house. They see this huge crowd. I mean, they can't get through the door. They can't even look in the windows. They're looking at each other. What are we going to do? We've got to get this guy to Jesus. And so they go up on the roof. Now, houses at this time period, many of them would have like a little stairway along the way to get up to the roof. And it says they clear an opening into the roof. Now, here's how this would work. Roofs in this time period in this area, the houses would be constructed. There would be these wooden beams across, and they'd lie these sticks and these branches, and then they'd cover it with mud so that the mud would dry, and that would be the roof. They would have to change out their roofs once a year right before the rainy season. Okay, so this is their roof. So it's not hard to imagine them going on the roof and then digging through the mud, pushing the branches aside, and making a space. So you're in the house. All of you, you're pressed in there. You're looking over someone's shoulder. Jesus is teaching. You're mesmerized. Okay, you're listening to him teach about the Bible, and and he's teaching. And all of a sudden, you hear something on the roof, some stomping around up there, but you, you pay no attention to it. You keep listening to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, you hear the scraping sound. And now everyone's in there kind of looking up. Jesus is trying not to be distracted. He's trying to keep teaching, but you hear the scraping sound. And then all of a sudden you hear things being lifted and someone, you see a hand kind of push through and digging out. Now everyone's stopping. There's particles falling down on people. You're all kind of backing up and you see them like Paul pulling aside and everyone's looking. Jesus has stopped teaching. And then all of a sudden you see, you hear one, two, three. And you hear, you see this mat starting to descend through this hole. People are now like getting under it. They're getting this mat. There's a person on there and they lay it down. I mean, there's all this commotion. Everyone's looking up. You see four faces look down. Everyone's looking at each other. They look down at this guy. The poor guy on the mat's probably feeling really conspicuous there, kind of looking around. Okay, they all look at him and then they all look at Jesus. What's he going to do? Let's see. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now wait a minute. I'm pretty sure these guys didn't go to all that effort to hear that. I mean, they were like, this cannot wait Soon as we hear Jesus is back, we're taking this guy to Jesus. Jesus is back, let's go. There's a crowd there, we're not waiting till he's finished. I mean, you sense the urgency. They're digging out this guy. Who owns this house? I heard it's some fisherman. Okay, I don't care. We're digging out his roof. They're dropping this, they're dropping this guy down. They lay him before him. They're laying there and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. 
Man, that's kind of an odd thing to say. All right, let's unpack this a little bit. The word sin, let's kind of talk about this because this is kind of a, kind of a Bible churchy word, sin. Okay, let's define what we mean. When most of us think about sin like a sin, we usually think of like a really bad sin. Okay, and when we think about sin, we think of like robbing a bank. Okay, like a bad sin is what we think of. When we think of someone who is in sin, okay, here's kind of what, what, what we do. We kind of have this line, this like demarcation line of, okay, here's the average person. The average person, they're just a good, they're a good guy. I mean, they're just, they're trying their best. They're sincere. That's the average person. And so what we usually think is, okay, if they do something that's bad, I mean, it's that really mean person at work. I mean, they're always talking bad about people and saying lies and they're backstabbing their friends. They're just rude. Okay, they're below the line. Okay, they're in sin, but most people are pretty good. And then, I mean, there's occasion you meet someone, they're just a really just gracious, generous kind of person. Okay, they're good. That's usually the line. We kind of look at the average of humanity and we say above average, good. Below average is, okay, that's where sin is. But how does the Bible define sin? In the Old Testament, this is the scripture that these people packed into this house have. This is what's taught about sin. God said, be holy as I am holy. Here's the demarcation line. It's God. Anything that's not as good and perfect and holy as God is sin. Everything that's not the perfection equal to God is is sin. So in other words, it's not just bank robbery. I might have the personal discipline to resist robbing a bank. But inside my heart might be still greed. And that's sin. I may still have selfishness in my heart. I may still covet. My friend has something. I'm kind of happy for them, but really I'm jealous and envious. And now it's kind of hard to be around them. So I'm letting that thing become more important than them in that relationship. And so in my heart, what is that? It's not just sin if I act on it, it's sin in my heart. It's not just the mean things that people say out loud, like come out of their mouth. You know, some of us are like, man, I just need to have a better filter and be careful what I say. That sin doesn't happen when it comes out of my mouth. According to the Bible, the, the overflow of the heart, as the heart is overflowing, that's what comes out of your mouth. That's what the Bible says. The sin is in my heart. It's not just I need a better filter. It's I need to change my heart. That's where sin is. So can you imagine when Jesus looks down at this man and says your sin is forgiven? It's not just surprising. What he's saying is remarkable. He's not just saying, hey, I know you've done a couple bad things in your past. Hey, those are forgiven. No, he's saying thoroughly down to your heart every last scrap of anything you've done that's below the perfection of God is forgiven. That's tremendous. Look at their response, verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're sitting there and they're, and they're starting to question this. They're like, man, who does this guy think he is? I mean, he's... He, he's not only saying that, he, I mean, he can't just go around talking about forgiving sins. I mean, that's God's business. Okay, these are the scribes. They're like the religious elite. They're the ones that study the Bible for a living. Okay, they know everything in it. Think about what they know that's in the Bible. 
Think of what God had commanded this people, his people, to do for the forgiveness of sins. Look at what, think of what he commanded them to do. He had commanded all of these sacrifices. All of these different sacrifices. He had said, if there's this sin, you do this kind of sacrifice. And there's actually this one day called the Day of Atonement. When they would, they, once a year, they would offer this sacrifice for the whole the whole community for the whole nation. And there was all these detailed laws. You had to wear, the high priest had to bathe himself a certain way, put a certain sash on, and he had to do certain things, sprinkle the blood just right. And in those pages, it actually says, here's how I want you to burn the incense, a specific way to burn incense in the holy place. And I'm telling you to do it this way so that you don't die in my presence. Okay, you see how, how specific, there's all these laws about how to forgive sins, and you've got these scribes, they know that in and out, and then there's some crazy rabbi wandering around in the northern part of Israel through Galilee just saying, ah, your sins are forgiven. I mean, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Let's see what happens next. Verse 8. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Yeah, no kidding. You think they were a little amazed? Okay, did you catch what Jesus just said? Because this is. Awesome. They're, saying, they're sitting there and they're getting all snooty. Like, who does this guy think he is? He can't say all this blasphemy. And it says, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking. So he says what they're thinking. Can you imagine how freaky that would be? This one guy's like, man, that's blasphemy. And Jesus says, don't say that's blasphemy. I wasn't saying it was that guy. I didn't say that, okay. Don't say that that's blasphemy. He says, let me ask you a question. I know you think that I'm just saying your sins are forgiven. So let me ask you, which would be harder? You tell me. Is it harder for me to say your sins are forgiven? Or would it be more of a challenge, like a little bit more difficult for me to look at this paralyzed guy and say, hey, how about you stand up, take your bed, and walk home? So that you know the first one is true also. Hey, man, how about you get up, take your bed, and go home? And they're looking at Jesus, and they look down at the guy, and I wonder if it was just like a split second, like just, I wonder if he just gave him just long enough for them to be like, this is crazy. And then all of a sudden his limbs go like this and he stands up and you know at that moment, like he wanted to like hug Jesus or shout or click his heels, but Jesus is still standing there like this. So he's like, okay, I'm out of here. You know, whatever you say, I'm taking my, I'm just going. He said, go home. So I'm going to go home. Okay. And he is out of there and they're all looking and it says they are amazed. Okay. Can you think of how amazing this is? I mean, think about this. Jesus didn't just say, let me heal what caused your paralysis. Okay, maybe he, he broke his back and he says, let me just heal your vertebrae and put them back in the place. And now someone help him out of here. He's got a couple years of physical therapy ahead of him. That's not what he said. Do you realize how thorough this healing was? His muscle tone came back completely immediately. His muscle memory 
completely restored. Everything neurologically is immediately back intact. It's not that he just, he didn't walk out with a limp. He walked up, had the physical ability to carry his bed, and he walked home. He wasn't walking home to a long recovery process. He was walking home, and it was done. There was no more trace of his paralysis. It was like it had never happened. That is amazing. Now, why, why is this story in here? Like, What's the point of this story? Jesus heals a lot of people, but he does something unique in this particular story. He uses this healing to prove something else. There's a lot of people Jesus just heals out of mercy. But in this, he stops to teach a lesson. He said, so that you know I have the authority to forgive sins. Look at this. If I can do this, I can certainly do this. If you're saying only God can forgive sins, well, who do you think can do this? Only God can do this. So where does that leave us with Jesus? Okay, why, why did he pick, think about this with me, of all the different infirmities that Jesus healed, all kinds of things, why did he pick this particular infirmity to make this point about the forgiveness of sins? Maybe in part, he wanted to show how thoroughly he healed this paralytic so that we could see that's a parallel for what forgiveness looks like. And in the same way, this man walked out as if he had never been paralyzed without a shred of evidence of his paralysis. Thoroughly healed in the same way, that's what, he, that's what forgiveness looks like. So thoroughly forgiving that it's like there's not a trace of our sin left. Maybe there's a, a, another truth here. Maybe this other truth is he's showing that he, of course, he's showing he has the authority to forgive sins. How does he have authority? Only God has the authority. He's showing who is Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He's fully God, fully man in their midst. And shortly after this, at the end of his ministry, he's going to die on the cross, bleeding out in agony. Why? That is, he's taking the punishment for our sins. And when he rises again on the third day, that's so that our sins are forgiven. He's setting up what he's about to do. And I think here's the reason that he picks this particular story to teach this truth that he has the authority to forgive sins. Because if we don't believe that he has the authority to forgive sins, we're stuck in the paralysis of our sin. If we don't believe how thoroughly he forgives, if we don't believe how absolutely completely like there's no trace left of our sin, if we don't believe that he heals that, that he forgives that completely, then our sin will continually paralyze us. It's like this, put it more simply, without a big view of forgiveness, sin will paralyze you. Without a big, thorough, complete, perpetual view of forgiveness. We will be stuck in the paralysis of our sin unless I realize I wake up every day, I need his forgiveness, I have his forgiveness, I'm in a constant state of forgive, forgiveness. 
Like I'm constantly, he's pouring out his forgiveness. I can never out-sin his forgiveness. He's pouring it down, his forgiveness, constantly on me without that kind of view of his grace and of his forgiveness that is constant, complete, steady, all the time, thoroughly expunging my sin out of me without that kind of big view of forgiveness. My sin will paralyze me. What do you mean? How is it going to paralyze me? I'm not totally sure I understand it. Well, it works like this. It starts with paralyzing our minds. See, some of us are here and you're saying, look, I get kind of nervous when we talk about all of this constant forgiveness and grace because I feel like people are going to hear that and they're going to say, man, when you talk about God, all of God's forgiveness and grace and how you can't out God, people are just going to go rampantly out and sin. You're just freeing people to sin. So it makes me nervous when we talk about all of this grace and all this forgiveness. I mean, shouldn't we talk about, man, sin is bad and it displeases God and, it, and, it, and it, look, at, look at the wrath that God has for sin and let's dig in and we've got to be disciplined and it's got all this hard work and we've got to combat sin. See, there's such an important truth. It starts in our minds. It's such an important truth. Does my hard work and my discipline, is it leading me to earn forgiveness? Or am I working to not sin before God because I already know I'm forgiven? Let me show you how this works out. Let me just start. This is the, the beginning question. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. Answer this in your heart. If I were to ask you, are you a godly person? What would you say in your heart? Are you a good person? Are you a godly person? What would you say? If you say, well, yeah, I would say I'm a godly person. I think most people would say I'm a godly person. Okay, then let's ask this next question. Why? Well, I mean, I, I pray. I, I don't hurt anybody. I come to church. You know, I read my Bible. You know, sometimes I share my faith. I, I'm, I'm a leader. I have a position at church. You know, I, I, I serve. I, I would say I'm a godly person. Because if that's your thought process right now, please lean in. Because what that question essentially is asking is, are you righteous? And if my answer is yes, because of look at what I'm doing, paralysis is starting. And it starts in the mind because if I say, yes, I'm a godly person, look what I'm doing. In order to keep in my mind a status of godly person or good person or righteous or good Christian, mature Christian, seasoned believer, whatever you want to say, in order to keep that status in my mind, I will have to then, I'll end up having a lower view of sin. See, some people say, man, if you talk about all this forgiveness and grace, people are going to have a lower view of sin. But paradoxically, the opposite is true. If I say, well, look, I'm a godly person, look what I do, I will have to dismiss so much other sin in my life in order to keep that status. And so here's how it starts. There's paralysis of the mind. Yes, I'm a good person, look at my life. And then what happens next? Sin does. I mess up. And because I see myself as a godly, good person, I mess up and I sin. And what's my reaction? I'm shocked at myself. I'm embarrassed. I'm humiliated. I can't believe I did that. I would never think of myself as someone who would do that. And what's happened? The next thing that happens is the my eyes become paralyzed. It's working its way down. My eyes become paralyzed because the view I have for myself is stuck. I view myself as a godly person, but I can't believe the actions that I just did. I can't believe the sin that I keep doing. I keep falling in. This is not what I think of myself. I would never do this. They might do this, but I would never do this. And then what's the next thing to get paralyzed? It's my mouth. 
I messed up, and now because I'm shocked and embarrassed and humiliated myself, I can't, I could never tell anyone. Because I'm trying to keep this view of myself and project this view of myself as a godly person. So I could never go to someone and say, man, I need you to pray for me. I keep falling into this sin. I've messed up. Please help me. I could never, and maybe I, I, my mouth is paralyzed from even confessing it to God. And maybe what I'm doing is saying, you know what, maybe this really isn't a sin anyway. You know, I, I, you know, you know what, really that's not that bad of a sin. And actually, I don't think it's a sin at all. And I, I figure out how in my mind it's not a bad thing that I've done. And then it keeps working its way down. What's paralyzed next? My heart. My heart starts to get hardened. It starts to get hardened to God. Like, God, why do you keep allowing me to fall into this? Why do you keep putting these temptations? It's really your fault. Why haven't you saved me from this sin? I'm mad at God. And then here's what I do. I get hardened towards everyone else. Because if I need to view myself as a godly person, then I need to find their sins and judge them to knock them down a level so I still feel better about myself. And so when I'm struggling and I'm mad at myself and my own sins, I'm going to start judging everyone else around me and I'm going to have this critical attitude and judgmental attitude of the people around me. My heart's getting hardened. It's getting paralyzed. And then what's the last thing? My legs get paralyzed. I'm stuck. I'm stuck right here. I can't face God's people. I can't go to church, so maybe I stop going to church for a season because I just I feel like I come in there, they're all judging me and they're all hypocrites and so I'm not getting near God's people. And I, can't, I don't run back to God because I feel like, look, I have to work to be pleasing to God, so that's a long distance. I, I'm already here in this sin. I'm just going to stay and wallow in it for a while because it's such a long path. I have to work myself back to God. And you see what's happened? I've become completely paralyzed in my sin. But let's start over. Am I a godly person? Absolutely not. You're asking me, am I righteous like God? No. No one is. I'm not even close. I'm so desperate for your forgiveness every day, God. You know, even if I have discipline to not say things, you know what's in my heart. You you know my heart better than me. You search my heart. You know the things that I've done, the things that I'm struggling doing. God, I need your forgiveness and your grace. I need it thoroughly every single day. Your grace is new every morning and I bank on that. And so what's my view of myself? Am I a godly person? No. Am I a good person? No. Am I righteous? No. But I'm forgiven. I stand, I can only stand before God, not because look at me, I'm a godly person, I'm a mature Christian. No, I stand before God because he's forgiven me, poured out his grace and washed me clean. So what happens next? I sin. And so then am I shocked? Am I surprised? I can't believe I did that. No. My God, I know that I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness and I'm trying. I'm trying to come back to, come back to you and, and follow after you, but God, I've fallen again, but I'm not surprised. And so what is my, let's, let's kind of do a, an analysis of the body. And are my eyes, are my eyes paralyzed? No, I, I don't struggle with my view of myself. I, I sinned and I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to sin. I'm not surprised because I know I need your forgiveness. Is my mouth paralyzed? No, I'm not trying to hide from anyone that I'm a sinner saved by grace, needing his forgiveness every day. So I can, as a guy, go to another trusted guy that's a, that's a fellow Christian and say, man, I, I just need to confide in you, man, I'm struggling. Or as a, a lady might go to a, another godly lady and say, look, I'm struggling with this. I can confess my sins to a brother or sister. I can confess my sins to God. God, I don't need to rationalize this away to try and prove myself that I'm a good person. I'm not. So I'm going to call this what it is. It's a sin, and I need you to get it out of my life. Help me. My mouth isn't 
paralyzed? Is my heart paralyzed? No. What's my view of God? I'm, I'm so grieved for my sin. I'm so committed to not staying in my sin, but it turns from grief into worship. But you've forgiven me. Thank you. Is my heart paralyzed towards other people? No, I'm not judging them. I'm a fellow sinner. Are my legs stuck, paralyzed in my sin? No, I don't, I don't see this long run back to God. No, because I know he's right there forgiving me. I don't have to climb my way back to God. His grace is new today. I can start fresh today. I don't run from God's people. I'm saying, hey, we're all in this together. We're all sinners needing the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We need a big view of forgiveness. Big view of how thoroughly he forgives us like there's not even a trace of, of our sin left. It's constant pouring on you every moment of the day. If you are in Christ, the power of the cross is more powerful than any sin in your life, past, present, or future. You are in a state of forgiveness. Let that motivate you to run to holiness. You say, okay, well, what's my response? What do I do in response? Can I just tell you Two practices, two simple practices in response to this. Here's the first one. Confession to God. The role of, of in your alone time with God that you have to have regularly. In your alone time with God, a part of that needs to be confession. Why? Is it so that I can get his forgiveness? Is it that once I confess it, then he forgives me? No. You've already been permanently forgiven. Your confession doesn't access that. If it did, you'd be in trouble because you couldn't possibly confess all of your sin. You are already forgiven. You're confessing it to remind yourself of why you constantly need the forgiveness you already have. Confession before God helps me remind myself of his big forgiveness and confession to a trusted brother or sister, another fellow Christian. When you confess that there's something so healing in having someone you trust say, hey, I'm struggling with this, please help me. That's the first thing. And here's the second thing. The second practice is to go back and remember your baptism. You say, that's interesting, why baptism? Go back and remember that moment that's something that, that every believer is, is commanded to do when we put our faith in Jesus and receive the forgiveness of God. It's the symbolic act where we're lowered under the water and raised back up. You need to go, that is a symbol that's supposed to reverberate through the rest of your life and remind you of a truth. What is baptism symbolizing? Is it a symbolic bath? Is it a symbol of a bath washing you clean of your sins? No. Because if you take a bath, you can get dirty again. It's a symbolic burial. You go under the water like this and you come back out of the water. It's symbolic that your old life, your sin, is buried with Jesus. And you're raised to walk in a brand new life. Go back and remember that moment and let it powerfully flow through the rest of your life. We, wanna, we have a video here that we want you to see to take you back to that moment when you found forgiveness in Jesus. In that moment, if you've been baptized, when you were, when you were baptized. Check it out. And I remember coming to church one Sunday. I filled out the connection card, and I think I checked off. Um, you know, I'm not sure what the box was, but you know, being aware of who God is, but want to know more. And then I got a call, and you know, he told me about how great it was to have me, and you know, can we get together? And I said, sure. 
And then we went to lunch one day, and um, after a series of <clears throat> discussions, he looked at me and he says, "Really, what would stop you right now from giving your life to God?" And uh, <clears throat> you know, feeling. <clears throat> Feeling came over me that <clears throat> I've never ever felt before. So much so that <clears throat> I'm trying not to. You know, I I started. I didn't start crying. I started bawling. Tears are running up my face. Snot is running from my nose, and and I felt the Holy Spirit. Yes. So, I mean, that moment I'll never ever forget. Never. And, you know, I can. Expressly say this: that I love God. I never thought I could say that before. En un domingo aquí en West Pine cuando me di cuenta que estaba yo ocultando mi fe en ese momento tomé la decisión de gritarlo de expresarlo y el evento del bautismo es el momento adecuado para hacerlo en ese momento thought that I have to invite all my friends, all my family and everybody that I know. And it was on that day when I feel my card to say I want to be baptized. Next Sunday we're having a baptism celebration and Let me tell you why that's for every single one of us in this room. It's not just simply to celebrate with those people that are being baptized. It's because you need, if you've been baptized, you need to stand by there and remember that moment when you went under the water and remember that moment that your sin, your past, your, your, the sins in your present and your future, all of it was buried with Jesus and you're walking brand new. Some of you are following Jesus. Maybe you've never been baptized since you put your faith in Jesus. Then here's what I want you to do. On your connection card before you leave, you need to check off the box that you want to be baptized. Next week, next Sunday is your Sunday. Join us and as many people are getting baptized and join us in that process and make that and do in obedience to Jesus, following after him in obedience to him. Let that powerful symbol be always a reminder in your life. You know, we always talk about the... Uh, The paralytic, when we're talking about this story, if you look at the heading of your, of your Bible or most Bibles, it says the healing of the paralytic. He's always talking about Jesus and the paralytic, the paralytic, the paralytic. I wonder if he's in heaven and he's looking down and he's asking this question, why does everyone call me the paralytic? I'm not paralyzed. Call me anything else. Call me the guy who walks. Call me the guy who runs and jumps and skips. I mean, call me anything. Don't call me the paralytic. There's no trace of my paralysis. What's the erroneous nickname? 
that you're walking with. I'm the person who, I carry this with me. This is, I'm the guy who has, it's not who you are. You're forgiven without a trace. Some of you this morning need to accept that forgiveness for the first time. You say, look, it just seems too easy just to receive forgiveness. Well, I wonder if that per- the man, when he was lowered on the mat, just seems so on display. You know, it's hard being the one that just needs to be helped. But that's what forgiveness is. It's us just saying, Jesus, I just need you to forgive me. There's nothing I can do to earn it or deserve it. Just please forgive me. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a simple prayer and receive the forgiveness of God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If that's you and you want to receive the forgiveness of God today, be saved and accept what Jesus did for you on the cross to forgive you for the first time. I want to lead you in a simple prayer. Make these words your words before God. Just pray this simply. God, between you and God, say, God, thank you for forgiving me. I know I don't deserve it. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross. I believe that I'm washed clean. I lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out our other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.